Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Naloxone is administered probably thousands of times a day in America to bring people back to life from an opioid overdose. Typically, a friend or family member finds an overdose victim and calls 911. EMS administers naloxone and transports the patient to the ED where they're monitored until it's safe to let them leave. Most often, offers to help them into treatment are refused. New studies revealed 10% of them will be dead within a year. Here to talk about that and what can be done to help more people into treatment at this critical moment is Dr. Scott Weiner, who practices emergency medicine and is affiliated with Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. So, Doctor, welcome. Thank you very much. You wrote an article that really caught my attention that was posted on the Harvard Medical School blog titled Naloxone, an important tool but not the solution to the opioid crisis. Naloxone, today, it's saving a lot of lives. So why isn't it a key part of the solution? Well, it, it actually is a key part of the solution. It's just not the total solution. Um, so I think probably the best way to frame a substance use disorder overall is just to think of it like any other disease. Uh, we needed to get rid of the stigma and just realize that it's a disease that people have and we need to figure out how to treat them. And I, and I think in this case, probably the model that works the best in my mind is about diabetes. Um, you know, a person could have diabetes, they might take their insulin and then not eat enough. They could become hypoglycemic where they're unresponsive and then they're rushed to the emergency department, they're given uh, glucose uh, so we can revive them. And then we get them back to a functioning state and they're, they're alive, which is great, but we, never, we didn't solve their underlying disease. And that's, that's very similar to the, to the model with naloxone. It basically just gets that person through that overdose, but it's not a panacea solution. And that, that was the whole method, message of, of, of the article. So you've studied this very carefully. In fact, you were able to gain access to some data that otherwise wouldn't have been available to study this through Chapter 55 legislation. As part of a multifaceted effort to combat the opioid epidemic, Chapter 55 
of the acts of 2015 was passed by the legislature of Massachusetts and signed into law by Governor Baker in August of 2015. This new law permits the analysis of different government data sets to guide policy decisions and to better understand the opioid epidemic. What happened was that um, the Commissioner of Public Health is Dr. Monica Burrell, um, is, is a big fan of using data to figure out more about public health. And she and her team realized very, very early on that they had a bunch of interesting data sets. They had death records, they had uh, ambulance transport records, they had uh, all-payer claims, which means that they had all the medical record expenditures for, or all the medical expenditures for, for everybody in the state, regardless of who the payer was. So it could have been Medicaid or Medicare or private insurance. Um, but all the, the databases, and I think there's something like 15 or 20 data sets, they were all separate. And so they had the idea to actually link them together. Um, but the way they did it, I thought, was also very innovative, is that the, the government, government basically mandated that it be done, um, so they put some funding behind it. And then they, they made an academic and public partnership where uh, those of us that do research could propose to the state some ideas that we had, and then some teams formed, they re refined the, the, the study questions, and then we were actually able to answer these questions that we had wanted to answer for, for, for so long. So our study was, was very simple, actually, and they actually did many more complex studies, but my study was very simple. And what I wanted to figure out was, you know, as you mentioned, I'm an emergency physician. I see patients in, in the ED after they had an overdose and they get naloxone and they survive. And then very commonly, that, that patient that's, that's revived they just want to leave the hospital. They, we offer them treatment. In fact, by law in Massachusetts, we have to offer them to see a social worker if they'd like to talk to a social worker and offer them resources. But often they just want to leave. But I wanted to be able to tell that patient and look them in the eye and say, this is your chance of dying within a year if you leave today and we don't get the help that you need. Powerful. And so that's, that's what we were able to answer with this study. Okay. So... Um you also helped to develop the Brigham Comprehensive Response and Education Program, better known as BCOR, earlier this year. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm very, very proud of the program and how it's come together. Um, I, I actually came to uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital about three years ago, and I realized that, uh, similar to many other hospitals around the country, many people were working on opioid-related projects, um, but it was very much siloed. So there might be an addiction psychiatrist working on things related to buprenorphine. There might be someone in primary care working on guidelines. There might be someone in emergency medicine working on overdoses. Uh, but there wasn't an umbrella to try and bring all this together. And the other important key part of this is that if you're going to make guidelines and practice recommendations that, that change practice broadly within a hospital, you need a hospital-based program to do that. And it needs to have the credibility of people like the, the chief medical officer and the chief quality officer and the chief nursing officer behind it so that the other practitioners actually follow the instructions that are given. And so we're very fortunate that they have a fellowship opportunity where we can uh, basically apply to set up a program for the hospital. And I applied for this, this program and, and got it, fortunately. And with that, we were able to start this whole program, which is called B Corp. So what's entailed with a, with a fellowship? Why is, why is that so important? Is it the funding, I assume? 
<laughs> that's basically it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, time is so precious these days, especially in, in medicine. So it provided some funding to, um, for, for time um, and then also some for education as well, too. So we, we used it also to provide uh, free CME for all of our providers, uh, pain-related as well. Um, we've used it to, to purchase naloxone so we can do training with that. Um, so, uh, but again, the resources are the most important thing, both for, for time and materials. Okay. And you started this program in January, and you've already got some initiatives in place. Would you like to tell us about some of those? Yeah, well, so it's actually older than that. We actually started in kind of the middle of 2016. So I think around May was our start date. Okay. Um, but we started with low-hanging fruit, and, um, you know, symbolically, obviously, but that kind of the obvious ones were first is drug take-back, which is the, the worst-case scenario is that there's a bottle of, of pills that are left over in the medicine cabinet that can then be diverted. And we know that the vast majority of, of opioids that are misused are, are basically obtained from friends or family members for free. That indicates that there's excess pills that are in the household. And so at our pharmacy, we just we set up a bin so people can bring back their medication that's, that's unused. And we try our best to inform them that once you're done taking them as instructed, bring them back, get rid of them. Another thing we think is very important is, like we mentioned before, is naloxone. And that patient that had an overdose that survives, as I showed from the research, is at extremely high risk of overdosing again and future risk of death. And so now we have programs in our, in our two hospitals. We have an academic hospital and a community hospital. And we, we offer them naloxone for free. Uh, and we give it to them. Um, anybody that's interested can get it um, w- without a prescription at this point. Um, and then finally, is we, we, we took a bunch of guidelines that, that has existed, uh, some by the Massachusetts Hospital Association, some from uh, sister hospitals in our system. Um, and then we took the CDC guidelines as well. And we created our own guideline document for, for our providers within our hospital which I thought was very important because we could incorporate kind of the best of those other guidelines, but to make them uh, appropriate for our environment. Okay. And what else is on the horizon for that program? What additional initiatives do you have planned for this year for that program? Yeah, so it's interesting. We have, we have you know, a lot on the plate, obviously. Um, probably there's, there's probably two really important initiatives that we're working on right now. And the first is, is just about prescriber benchmarking. Uh, what we're finding is that within, within clinics and systems and hospitals, uh, there's, there's huge variability in how providers give opioids. And it's very different than something like, for example, uh, you know, antibiotics, where we have fairly clear-cut guidelines when we're supposed to use those medications. And so we're, we're working on ways to feedback the prescribing behavior to providers, but in a non-punitive way. But just to say, you know, hey, you're, you're one standard deviation above the mean for all of your prescriptions compared to your peers. So let's talk about ways that we can actually safely decrease your prescribing while not under-treating pain. So that's, that's one important initiative. And then the second one is um, the creation of a bridge clinic, which is essentially a place where people can go, um, even without an appointment, where they can get started with buprenorphine if they need it, or uh, given other resources, just until they're stabilized enough so we can get them into a longer-term program. And we've actually uh, secured the funding so we can actually open a new clinic. We're, um, we're hiring addiction experts, resource nurses, social workers, 
um, we're fully committed to making this work. As it turns out, Dr. Weiner was also very familiar and has worked with a couple of physicians that we've done prior podcasts with. Um, in episode 138, we interviewed Dr. Katherine Hawk, an emergency physician and assistant professor at Yale University's Department of Emergency Medicine. In that podcast, we discussed a study done by the Department of Medicine that utilized 329 patients and monitored their progress and showed significantly better results by those in the Suboxone control group. So let's spend a little bit more time describing that bridge clinic. Um, could you go into a little bit more detail on that, doctor? Because that sounds like something very, very powerful that many communities could use. Yeah, I, I wish I could claim um, responsibility for the idea, but I, I certainly can't. It was um, some other very brilliant people came up with this. And, uh, you know, one of them is the system that you heard about on a previous podcast from Yale, uh, where they actually studied it and they started this, this program. They found that if you came to the ED after an over, or with withdrawal symptoms or an overdose and they got you started on buprenorphine then and there, got you connected to a clinic, they had 70% of patients who were still in treatment at the month compared to less than half of that if they were just given the standard of care. We've actually figured out that not just the ED population is extremely vulnerable, but there are patients from primary care that need help, and then there, there are patients in the hospital too. A uh, classic example is something called endocarditis, which is a heart infection that you can get if you're injecting drugs. And we have people that are in the hospital for weeks at a time, but we're handling problems, we're handling all their cardiologic problems, but we're, we're not adequately treating their, their substance use disorder. And so this is a way to actually tie that all together. We can get them started on, on, on stabilization for medication, and specifically buprenorphine, that's what we tend to use in, in our hospital. But with the idea that if you're, if you're actively using, you've got a brain disease, and, and your brain is basically telling you, just get the next dose. And, and as we know, people, they lose their, fam their family, their friends, their jobs, they resort to criminal behavior just in pursuit of what, of what this addiction is doing to them. If we can get them stabilized and get them started on buprenorphine and take, take that, the, the fear of withdrawal off the table, then we can start to talk about how we can get them, get structure into their lives, get them counseling, get them uh, a, a stable outpatient provider. And so that's what the bridge clinic is about. It's about finding, it's about that bridging period where we're trying to stabilize people and get them the help that they need. So can anybody in your community that's struggling with substance use disorder go to a bridge clinic? Yeah, well, again, they're, they're starting to pop up. Um, in Boston, currently I'm aware of two of them. That's at Massachusetts General Hospital and Boston Medical Center, and both of them have a walk-in model currently. Um, and then our clinic will, will also be uh, a, a walk-in model. Um, the, it, it's, it's an interesting question. The, the funding for ours is coming from uh, Medicaid, and we're entering into a, a Medicaid accountable care organization. So we, we found that very, kind of very interestingly is if you take if you change the, the incentives and flip them around, so you actually look to help people and save money as well, and then the hospital makes more money, then you can actually do programs like this. So, so we're using our funding to, 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 to kind of turn things on their head because the, the old-fashioned model of just like fee-for-service for addiction services doesn't, doesn't cover the expenses of the addiction services. So, so that's our incentive to doing so. Yeah, so um, irrespective then, uh, of insurance, people can walk in and they can participate at the bridge clinic. 
that's that's the vision. Well, you know, we'll see how this works out. We're, we actually haven't started uh, open. We haven't opened yet, but we're, we're aiming for early spring. Um, and we're, we'll take all comers at this point. So it was interesting. In episode 108, uh, Dr. Weiner was also familiar with the physician that we interviewed there, and that was Dr. Belma Andrick. And in that episode that was titled Removing Obstacles for Recovery, it was all about this team that came up with this concept of utilizing Suboxone in the ED. What they did was when someone overdosed and came into their ED in Palm Beach County, they would consult with them, and if they qualified for the program, meaning they felt as though they would really follow through on this and and use it as an on-ramp for treatment, then right then and there, they would give them Suboxone. And for the next eight days, they would actually go to their home and deliver the counseling as well as the Suboxone to them. At the end of eight days, they come into the local healthcare provider and treatment facility and get an assessment. Now, at that point, they've stabilized and they've had great success in getting them in. That was our point of reference here in our discussion with Dr. Weiner. So the, the basic model is this, is that, um, so obviously to prescribe Suboxone for, for the addiction indication, you have to get a special waiver from the DEA. You have to take a course that's seven or eight hours and take an exam, and then, then you can get the special certificate that says that you can prescribe. And um, I won't editorialize too much, but I always thought that was kind of silly because I don't have to do that for any other medication, but I do, do for this. Um, but that's a huge barrier. So we're, we're working really hard to try and get as many primary care physicians waivered as we can. And then we've got an, an excellent department of psychiatry and addiction psychiatry division as well. And they work very collaboratively with the primary care physicians. So the idea is that they're not actually prescribing the, the buprenorphine, the suboxone, but they're, they're kind of co-managing with the, the primary care physicians until the primary care physicians feel comfortable with them and feel that the patient is stable. And then it just becomes like any other medication. It's just like, okay, you're taking your, your blood pressure medication and you're taking your substance use uh, disorder medication and you're taking your insulin. Um, and so it's, it's starting to gain some steam. It just, just takes a while for people to become more comfortable with it. Um, but they're seeing the successes, and that, that's, that's very meaningful. Wow. Now I want to move along to another innovative program that you came up with to educate the public. And that was with you uh, outside of the hospital. You set up a mannequin on the street in high overdose zones or a high overdose zone. And you ask passersby to role play a scenario where they've come across an overdose victim. Tell us about how that works. Yeah, sure. So. It actually, the scope wasn't initially uh, educational. The, the idea was, was uh, something that um, some colleagues and I came up with, including Dr. Scott Goldberg, who's one of my, my, uh, my co-attendings at, at Brigham Women's Hospital, uh, Ted Lau, who's one of the residents, and a couple other collaborators. And we said, uh, we realized that uh, overdoses were increasing, and sometimes it takes a while for the ambulance to actually get to the patient. So I said, what, what would happen if we would pre-station naloxone? So we could have it just in the public space where if someone found someone that needed help, they needed naloxone, they could call 911 just as usual, but they could actually access the, the naloxone much more quickly than it would take for the ambulance to arrive. And so as part of that, we wanted to, to prove that it was possible. And so sure enough, we, uh, we, we geocoded all of the EMS ambulance runs for overdose in the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we found two hot spots where they tended to cluster. 
And one of them was in this big square called Central Square. And so we found a, a good location there and with the collaboration of police and fire in the city, uh, we set up a mannequin, uh, which basically was just lying on the sidewalk and there was kind of fake drug paraphernalia at their side. And we asked passersby if they could, uh, what they would do in that situation. And as soon as they indicated that they would call 911, we handed them a telephone and they would role play with someone on, on the other line that was actually reading the exact same procedures that they, they would get if they actually did call 911. But the difference was that about 100 feet away was we had a, a box that was locked open with a code where you could actually get, get Narcan and then they would get it and they'd bring it back to the mannequin. And we wanted to see if they could administer it to the mannequin with no further instruction, just, just over the phone. And we found that 49 out of 50 people were able to do it without any difficulty. Um, the, the, the one person that wasn't able to actually have, had the, uh, the apparatus upside down, and that was the reason why they couldn't do it. Hmm. 98%. Um, so, that's pretty good. Yeah, and one of them was a, a woman that had a baby strapped to her chest, and she was, like, bent over administering the Narcan. We said, no, you, don't, you don't have to do this. And she's like, no, no, I take the baby everywhere. This is fine. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was very rewarding to see. People were very willing to help. And it was very easy to do. Next, I'd like to talk about that national program that before we went on here with the show, you you were alluding to, but we didn't have a chance to get into an in-depth conversation with it. Uh, so I'd like to do that now. Sure. Um, there's a program that's uh, basically co-sponsored by the American College of Emergency Physicians, or ASEP, and, uh, and CMS, you know, who obviously is in charge of, of Medicare. And they started a couple of years ago a, a network that was called EQUAL, an emergency quality network. Um, and the initial goals were to work on some metrics that were important for CMS. Uh, for example, improving the care of, of patients with sepsis, uh, improving the care of patients that presented with chest pain, and also for reducing uh, unnecessary imaging in, in the ED, both for the reasons of, of controlling costs and also radiation. And the, the project was designed to work with, uh, it's called the MIPS program, which is part of uh, CMS, where uh, groups, physicians that do quality pro programs like this actually get a, a couple percentage of an incentive to be able to, to do this project. And it's, it basically uh, targets and affects the community hospitals, which, you know, there's far more community hospitals in the states than there are academic hospitals. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes they're a little more disconnected from the very up-to-date um, recommendations just because there's not, this is often not residents around and active teaching going on. And they've been very successful with that. So um, we recently put a proposal in to add a fourth arm to this, which would be opioid-related issues. And it's uh, graciously funded by the Addiction Policy Forum. Um, and the idea is that we're going to be creating some guidelines uh, for opioid prescribing and then also increasing resources for uh, patients with substance use disorder whether it be actually starting buprenorphine or, or providing naloxone for their patients. We're just at the very beginning stages of this project, so I don't have uh, further details to report at this point, but hopefully maybe in the future you can have me back. But, um, but we're, we're enthusiastic that you know, this, should, this should reach hundreds and hundreds of hospitals. Um, they've got the incentive, the financial incentive, to actually do something, and we, we hope that we can just continue to move the needle on this whole issue with it. Terrific. What's your goal in terms of rolling this out, doctor? Uh, as far as what? As far as uh, time course or yeah. uh, metrics and things like that? Uh, well, I was thinking the timeline of when you thought that this might be, uh, you might be in a position to have this in place. Yeah, so I think we're, I mean, to start in the spring. We've got um, 
a, a steering committee, which is a bunch of experts from around the country. Uh, we're going to have our first call in January. Uh, we've got the website up that has the initial state, like the initial structure there. Um, so by the spring, we should be able to launch. And then um, the project is usually a year at a time where departments can choose one aspect of the project, uh, and then we'll do that for a few years. So they can actually do multiple interventions if, if they, they stick with it. And how many uh, hospitals would this have the potential to impact? So basically any hospital in the country is, is able to participate. What we've found is that the, the, the majority of the hospitals tend to be ones where they have big groups that staff the ED. Um, there's some companies called like Envision or Shoemaker or Team Health. Um, they tend to have contracts where they staff the EDs in a lot of community hospitals. Um, particularly more in the South, but actually throughout the country. And for them, this is a, a great benefit, and it's a good way to get, to, to get the incentives that they, they need for, for Medicare, but also to get the education out to their doctors. Uh, and again, I think the, uh, so again, that's, that's hundreds and hundreds of EDs, something around 800 is, is uh, the number that's in my head currently. Wow. But uh, again, it's, it really gets to those hospitals where it's a little bit hard to uh, to ex- expand the education and and and, um, and and reach them. So, again, I think that's I'm optimistic about that fact alone. Very exciting. Well, I tell you, we've covered a lot of ground with quite a number of programs here, and I really appreciate your time today, Doctor. Uh, what final thoughts would you like to share with our uh, our listeners about what you've experienced, what you've learned? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for allowing me to, to share some of the projects. We're really excited about them. Um, and I think that the fact that there are so many projects is, is really what my final thought is, is that this is, this is not a simple problem and there is not a simple solution. Um, and, and I think that people often look for a simple solution and, and you, know, you have to think we've been you know, 15, 20 years into this now. It's, it's not going to be quick to turn around. Um, but we have to be multifaceted. We have to think of how to avoid people from becoming dependent on opioids to begin with and when they are dependent on opioids, how we can help them, um, take them safely, and if they de- develop opioid use disorder, how we can treat them. It's, it, we have to look at the whole spectrum, and unfortunately it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of work, um, but I know that there's many of us around the country, yourselves included, that are, want to see it happen, um, and we'll get, we'll get there. Well, thank you again, Doctor. We've You're been, welcome. Thank you. Okay. We've been talking today about what can be done to help people into treatment, people that are struggling with opioid substance use disorder. And we've learned of a number of programs, innovative, brand new programs, that Dr. Scott Weiner and his team have innovated and implemented through their uh, practice with emergency medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. 
If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.